Welcome to Envision, the podcast to travel to new terrain into the world of possibilities, where conversations with visionaries, their experience and their imagination take place. We explore ideas and desires to widen individual vision and expand the collective together. Let's imagine a new world and speak it aloud, letting that vision become our inspiration to create it. If you're here, you believe in the power of transformation. I am Aurora Morfin, and I am so grateful that you're here. I'm with Cassie today. Let me introduce you. Cassie Breider, she's a writer, public speaker, educator, and group facilitator with a focus on diversity and inclusivity. She also lectures on constant culture, especially as relates to marriage, parenting, and relationships. All that with a deliberate focus on social change. Welcome, Cassie. Thanks for being here. Such a pleasure. You want to add something on that brief introduction? I'm the founder of EmpoweredTransWoman.com, and that's something that I'm really proud of. I'm trying to build a community hub for trans women online that doesn't depend on Facebook. So EmpoweredTransWoman.com is where I'm building that. And that's, I think, what I'm devoting most of my time these days to. Amazing. This time, we are going to explore your imagination and your experiences in this life. What I really want to do here is create a vision and speak it aloud. You know, so we can really get inspired from that wide opening, different ways of doing things in this world, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit, how was the world like from your child's perspective? How did you see the world when you were a child? It's interesting because it's hard to put into words. I'm going to try, but I I was aware of the fact that I was supposed to be a boy. Uh, There were enough people telling me that I was a boy and... They seemed to be pretty convinced of it. And I didn't seem to, I, I wasn't equipped to argue against that. Um, it didn't sound right, right to me, it didn't feel right to me, but at the same time, it seemed undisputable. Um, you have this stupid little thing hanging between your legs, I suppose that you had, that, that makes you a boy. And I tried the, my, the best I could to perform as a boy. So I, I remember observing a lot what boys do and, trying to learn but i remember doing it 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 was a constant deliberate thing from the moment i was six and seven and nine i remember observing the way boys cross their legs and then trying to cross my legs the same way i observed the the way that girls walk and trying to avoid walking that way because i i was afraid i was very afraid in spanish culture and i'm sure that you're aware of this there's the word maricon it's a really heavy word with a lot of heavy implications and I was terrified of that word so I was trying really hard to stay away from it but inside it just it didn't fit right so and this is a really sad part of the trans experience that quite often we learn how to navigate this world uh, by creating this illusionary persona this this puppet that we hold for everybody to see but it feels fake we're not really engaging with people basically was performing for people. And I did that really well. And there's a lot of activities that are not gendered. Art, for example, I really enjoyed art. I really enjoyed music and I wrote poetry. And those things allowed me to kind of have an escape. But meanwhile, boys are supposed to be playing soccer. I hated soccer. And I collected glitter stickers and I liked to play tea time with my cousins. And uh, that raised eyebrows. In Argentina is a really macho culture. So I was constantly navigating, trying to stay away from my father's ridicule, from my father's wrath, 
about uh, being too amanirado was another word that was thrown around, too swishy, and generally pulling it off. My mother, when I came out to her as trans, and my mother still doesn't quite fully get it, when I came out to her as trans, she said that she always suspected that I was, that I was gay, um, which of course brings up the question, why the hell didn't you say something? And she said something that was kind of valid. She said, well, what if I had said something and I was wrong? Mm. Of course, you know, I live in a different world and I have a different perspective. And my initial, my initial thought is open the conversation and ask the questions. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. But it was a different era. You know, at the time it was heavily police gender roles. So I understand her, her concern. Um, but she didn't get it. She, at one point, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. She, I had come out to her and then we have a bunch of relatives still in Argentina. And she tells me, by the way, everybody in Argentina is fine with it. And I said, who's everybody? Fine with what? <laughs> and she said, well, I told everybody. And so, no, you don't do that. You don't out somebody against their wishes. And then I said, what did you tell them? And she says, well, I told them that you're gay. Uh, I'm not, though. <laughs> I, it's just, it gets really funny. At some point, I think she might catch on to what's really going on. <laughs> but anyway, so I grew up with this sense of dislocation, but also understanding that there's a performative, there's a performance I'm supposed to put on. And I focused a lot on that. Something that was really confusing to me, this is a part that gets nuanced because I grew up largely with the soul of a girl, but with the testosterone infusion that boys have. And I have to tell you, if I could communicate something to women, be kinder towards men. And I'm not saying forgive them for all the stupid things they do, and I'm not saying forgive all the, the, the improper sexual advice. None of that is okay. But start with kindness because you have no idea what it's like to have the testosterone poisoning <laughs> that they have. Um, it makes you absolutely obsessed with sex. I remember being absolutely obsessed with sex when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, and it was maddening. It was like, could I just have a moment of peace? But in my case, combined with the fact that I wasn't sure if I liked boys or like girls, it made it very shameful, especially in that Catholic macho culture. At one point, we were all heading towards Boy Scout camp. Yes, I went to Boy Scout camp. <laughs> and the 14-year-old boys, tricked me i was 12 they tricked me this one guy who i kind of had a crush on he tricked me into going to the back of the bus and giving him a brief hand job just playing with his cock for a short while and then they all laughed at me because they they had me fall for it and they made me do it and i went back to my seat kind of laughing inwardly because to me, this was the perfect scenario. I got to play with a penis, which I kind of wanted. And I'm completely guiltless because I was conned into this. I was, this was not my fault. They made me. They, <laughs> so I, was, I, I had a great alibi. But I was just like, oh, you think that that was a hardship for me? <laughs> of course. Wow. There's so much, so much to unpack in this very beginning of your life. It's like, I have so many questions. Were you aware of, you're saying that you didn't have the words or many things of what was going on, but I mean, people was aware that you were having this inner constant battle of, because like you could tell, or were you performing so right that they consider you like a bully boy, or they were just so oblivious and blind that they didn't want to see it? 
part of it is my brother and I were small kids. We were very small boys. My mother is only five feet tall, actually four foot 11, and I'm five, five foot two. So we were very small children. So as a result, we weren't expected to be athletic. And my brother is a brainiac and a nerd. So, uh, and I was a poet. So because of that, a lot of it was excused or seen through the lens of, oh, he's so sensitive. He's an artist. And that got me away with a lot. And I also really like to spend time with girls. And the blindness of hetero people is funny because since I was a child, all my friends were girls. I always was at, at my best friend's house and she was a girl. I had sleepovers and we played with glitter stickers and we colored together. And meanwhile, the mothers were saying, oh, he's such a heartbreaker. He's always with women. <laughs> like, That's wow. Yes, I hear you. It could be hard. And how did you take all those things? To me, it helped because it was really important for me to convince the world that I was a boy because I felt that I was terribly exposed. Something interesting is I grew up understanding perfectly well that this is a world of men, that women are inferior, women are emotional, flighty, and uh, unreliable, and men are, are intelligent, smart, and powerful. And to grow up with that schema when I know that I'm a girl, but I just can't tell anybody, was terrifying. Um, one of the things that saved my my life saved my butt was Wonder Woman, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Why? I was watching her, I saw, you know, she's tall and powerful and she's wearing red boots and she's kicking ass. And it really defied a lot of these ideas of women are meek and, and, and weak. And it made me feel, you know what, I can, I probably could be strong and a woman. But still, of course, the idea of being a woman. I have to tell you two moments, really important moments of my childhood. One was when I was eight years old, a boy from the neighborhood convinced me to go upstairs to my terrace, the terrace of my house, and we dropped our pants. And what he wanted us to do, which he described to me, is he wanted me to put my pee-pee between his butt cheeks, and he wanted him to put his pee-pee between my butt cheeks. I thought all this was ridiculous and kind of icky, but I liked him, so I was going to go along with it. Um, but it seemed like a waste of time. And so I positioned myself behind him and I was very grossed out at the thought because you know poop comes out of there so I wasn't really that enthused about the whole concept and then he positioned himself behind me and then I felt his penis against my butt and something happened and it was kind of terrifying because my sexuality woke up and I just, I wanted to be penetrated and I felt all these feelings, eight years old and just having all these feelings and realizing with full certainty, this is not, this is not what I'm supposed to be feeling. This is not the story that's supposed to emerge out of this. At that exact moment, my father caught us. Oh gosh, what a, wow. So yeah. That a, was horrible. Of course. But that was a telling moment. That was a telling moment of my childhood. And then the other one is we vacationed to Brazil when I was 11. And I saw a tabloid that spoke about a transgender woman, a transsexual girl that was transitioning very young, I think at 20, um, which at the time was considered very, very young. And the, it, this was a tabloid, so it was the headlines and it had really garish. And I remember staring at that, just fascinated at the possibility that somebody could do that. 
Mm. Um, at any point, at any point of my whole life, if you had told me, would you like to be a boy or girl? I would have just not even hesitated for a second. Of course, a girl. Like, why would anybody want to be a boy? That sounds ridiculous. Um, it was strange for me to find out that some boys seem to be okay with being boys. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And what, at that point, have you expressed something to your family, to your parents, or someone at least? Or it was always just inside of you, all this accumulation of feelings, emotions, and confusion? It was always very, very hidden. I grew up in a very religious household. My family is actually Russian. Um, and the way that I like to describe Russian Christian Orthodox to people is that it's like Catholic, but seriously, though. <laughs> <laughs> without the fun. So uh, yeah, it was pretty dreadful. And uh, so I, I grew up, the moment I discovered masturbation, I, I totally constantly felt that I was a sinner. And also here's something else that's really important. And this is something I really want to, if there are any parents of trans kids listening, if there, this is so fundamental. Watch what you say around your children. This applies to any children actually, because if you say things about sex around your children, the shame that you could convey because my father told all the jokes and his buddies told all the jokes around the asado the barbecue around the grill and the jokes were misogyny homophobia transphobia invariably there was hardly any time that there was a joke that would be about a bear <laughs> or about a rabbit no the jokes were about faggots and about trannies and about the ball and chain or or the bitch they were nasty jokes and I understood the paradigm. I understood who were the people that I'm not supposed to emulate in my life. Um, when I discovered masturbation, I discovered also that the way that I liked to masturbate was to be penetrated. And that was a deep source of shame for me because that was not to be, supposed to be the case with me. And slowly I kind of broke away from some of, I broke away from my religious convictions at some point in my teens. I broke away from my parents. I ran away from home at 17. And I, during those first few months, I lost my virginity. I lost my virginity to a boy. And uh, then I slept to a girl shortly afterwards. And so that was like, okay, so which is it? <laughs> and then I slept to another boy. And I, at that point, I had really lost my patience. Like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> because none of this seems to be fitting me and none of this seems to be working. And what I discovered so many years later is that it wasn't about who I was sleeping with, it was about how I was showing up mm. and who I was. Mm. Uh, not sexuality, but identity. So, um, and that, was, that made a big difference. Yes, and I guess it's, I was going to ask you, because for me, I believe that owning our sexuality really helps us, you know, to own every area of our lives. So if you don't have that part, and I, I know in my personal experience, you know, it's sexuality was like last frontier in exploring when I was getting into my healing and growing journey. It was the last frontier because I was so afraid of it. You know, I grew up also in a Catholic area and it was a huge taboo everything was a scene so i felt guilty for everything so I, I was wondering how was your sexual education did you get any at all or how did you start like finding the pieces to put what was going on together for you i had a 15 year old girlfriend when i was 13 and she was very very horny <laughs> 
I was not ready for all that. I, I felt really reticent and hesitant. Um, so we did, we did some exploring. Interestingly enough, she slid a finger in my butt, which I was very, I very much welcomed, but it was confusing. <laughs> um, but we, we did a lot of kissing, lots and lots of kissing. She introduced me to the Marquis de Sade, would you believe it? She gave me the book, The Bedroom Philosophers, which is very, very dirty erotica. Um, so that was my introduction to the sexuality, reading The Marquis de Sade, which is not, not a 101 kind of a first step lesson. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was pretty advanced, clearly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I was reading about threesomes and about orgies. It was fascinating, but very intimidating. Then, um, and then I basically was very, very sheltered until my first two or three sexual experiences at 17. Then something really important um, worth pointing out. I discovered that I liked men. I discovered that I liked being penetrated by men pretty much the same, or I verified it, so to speak, I confirmed it. At 17, the same week that Rock Hudson died nas nationally and publicly of AIDS on national TV. So my coming of age, so to speak, was completely marked by, oh, you're gonna die. You are 100%, of course, are going to end up in a hospice, wasting away with wounds all over and your parents are going to abandon you and then you're going to die tragically. I knew that with a certainty, like I know that I have two legs um, and it was absolutely terrifying. And so I shut down completely and I didn't have any kind of sexual experience. I didn't even masturbate for the next nine years. Oh gosh. Um, complete shutdown. I, I, I went into complete hiding which is not a good idea in your 20s. You want to explore, you want to have fun in your 20s. <laughs> oh, I hear you. Oh my, that's a that's tough time. And what happened in during, during that time? How did you handle? It was just shutting down. And I hear you because I, I, I did my shut down in many aspects, you know, but, and I kind of like put it in all so down and expanded so much energy doing that and being distracted with so many other things. What, what did you do or? It's very embarrassing. I'll tell you, but it's very, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I joined a cult. I lived in their campus. I was away from civilization for, for many years. I was in there and I was saving the world. That was a story I was telling myself that I was in a new religion and I was saving the world. What I was really doing is escaping from myself and they were going to fix me they explained to me what was going on with my soul and they were going to fix it and i i was i was like i couldn't wait like freaking fix me already turns out that it was false advertising <laughs> they can't fix me <laughs> tell me something because for me it's like the lightness and the empathy and the lightheartedness in every way you're telling your story it's just like opens my heart. How have you always had this easiness and humorous taken and approaching to life or, or is it something that you develop also into dealing with so much? It's, it's a coping mechanism and it's a deflection mechanism. Kind of like the Jewish people are really good at humor because they've endured so much. 
<laughs> I think that it's like that. I've always, I've always found that my ability to amuse people and my ability to get a laugh was a good way to stay safe. But I also developed it as a way to keep myself lighthearted and to see circumstances, um, to see. I'll give you an example of. And sometimes this humor is really dark. At one point, a neighbor who was uh, deeply transphobic physically attacked me and he was choking me and he's yelling at me that I'm a faggot and as I'm being choked I tell him that's inaccurate the insult would be tranny actually <laughs> what happened after did he laugh <laughs> no <laughs> he, he he was puzzled by me so he let me go <laughs> um I wouldn't fight him but no that was just I tried to outsmart people and sometimes that'll get me in trouble I think but yeah, humor is a good way to, and I, so in, in one way it's unhealthy because it's just a deflection mechanism. But the empathy part is important. The empathy part, if you can see why people react the way that they do and what are the motivators and, and stuff. And a lot of people react weirdly to transgender folk. And if you kind of understand how you're disrupting their world, and I'm not saying that I'm ex excusing it or I'm going to apologize for my existence, but I can see where they're coming from. I don't know if you did you ever watch the Game of Thrones, that show on TV? Not really. I've heard a lot about it, but not really. Something kind of interesting about the show is that the good there's not really a good guy and a bad guy. There's just a whole bunch of people with different ethos and different ways of looking at the world. Some of them are ruthless and merciless and really, really villainous, horrible people. But you can get where they're coming from. Mm. If you examine their lives, you can see where they're coming from and you say, okay, I can't get you. I'll give you one example. J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter books, recently said a couple of pretty transphobic things. And it creates a really big conflict because I love her books and my son loves Harry Potter. And at the same time, she now believes that people like me don't have a right to exist in the world. So how do I reconcile those things? And the way they reconcile those things is she hasn't rubbed elbows with somebody like me. She's coming from a sheltered world that's very different from mine. We don't live together. This is a really big world. And her skill set, the things that she's wise and smart in, is not this. This is not her beat. So really the big thing that I fault her is we should keep our mouths shut when we don't know the topic. But beyond that, I think we all have prejudices. So I try to look at it this way. I hear you. For me, it is a huge part of healing and growing. It's analyzing and being aware of your own reactions to whatever is going on around because it tells you so much of where you are shorthanded and where you are really conditioned and where you are not understanding others. But it's hard to get there if you are just living in the turbulence of like surviving, right? Because there's a lot of... yeah inside and you keep on just defending yourself and lashing out to everyone that gets closer because you just believe that you are creating this safe space for you to be okay or survive literally and quite often we just don't examine things we we just take take our paradigm for granted and one of the amazing things about transition is that it for, focuses you it forces you to re-examine so much so much and you learn so much it's it's kind of embarrassing and sad and silly to to think about this man that I was 10 years ago and how I thought that I was doing a pretty good job and I wouldn't spend five minutes with that asshole. <laughs>
That's a brutally honest. <laughs> well, I'm exaggerating, but but so many so many blind spots and stuff. Men really, really don't get a woman's experience. When you walk the world as a woman, and when you are belittled, when you experience misogyny, when 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 you get denied opportunity, when you get somebody, and I literally have have experienced a, a pay cut uh, of about thirty percent when I went looking for a job in my in my field in my career as a woman i get paid less and when you experience all these things and experience the constant sexual advances of men and whatnot you develop a very different viewpoint and so if i could speak to that person 10 years ago said you have no idea i hear you and for me that's what it's fascinating from you uh, you know and it's important to raise your voice because you have both experiences in one lifetime and having that perspective and understanding from one side and from the other side i believe it's what it's really needed to heal and really find a way to collaborate instead of fighting instead of blaming instead of just pointing fingers to it's your fault no it's yours you're not doing you're it's it's more a way of understanding why are we being the way we're being because i am a big believer that we both have both energies right like we mm -hmm. have the feminine the masculine and i actually i might i sometimes not have not now anymore but i used to be a very masculine woman because that was my way of being you know and my way of making a space for me in a corporate world yeah it was just this type and you have to be this and you know i was a strong and i and now that I see that, it was like, I had to be that persona in order to get what I needed and what I wanted. But that wasn't me. I actually was very lonely. I was very... So it's, it's really this idea of how the other thinks that the other has to be, but we are both not really being authentic or honest about who we are. And that's, for me, huge potential in this world, that we can really explore new ways of being. But tell me, I'm really curious now, how does your worldview has changed so far? But by the way, one note that I want to make is that these concepts, and, and I don't disagree with you at all, I think that what you said makes perfect sense, but these concepts of what makes a masculine person, what makes a feminine person, whether a woman is being a little too masculine, for example, or too bossy, they're changing and they really need to change. And all of these uh, are going to be an assertive person is not necessarily masculine. A forceful person is not necessarily masculine. Hopefully, our children and the next generations are going to come up with non-gendered ways to look at all this. So it's it's hopefully changing. But yeah, you you I really hesitate speaking about men because it puts me on the defensive. I think I, I have worked so hard to be accepted into the fold of women that for me to come here and say oh, I come as an ambassador of those people. Now that's not going to serve me any, that's not going to help me. But what I can tell you uh, is more along the line. And by the way, an, another nuance is I was never really a boy. I was a girl living in, boys, in, the, in the boys' world. So a lot of my perspectives, when I share them with a boy or with a man, they say, no, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I never experienced that and I don't relate. So um, I'd never actually lived a man's experience, but I've, I've rubbed elbows with them and they've spoken to me really candidly. I was a spy in their world. <laughs> Thank you for that, because now I understand. Yeah, I see that slight and subtle, but really it's a nuance that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, but however, that said, um, I do think that I can communicate some things about men that women really don't get. Men have complicated, complex, deep emotions 
and women stomp over these emotions all the time and women are ruthless with men uh, and hurt men's feelings all the time and part of it is because we don't see the feelings because men are not good at vocalizing those feelings or showing them and we do this stupid thing of like what are you thinking what are you thinking what do you think which drives men crazy and men are not taught that it's okay for them to express their feelings. A man is not going to say, well, I'm feeling a little insecure today because I'm not quite comfortable with the way that, a man is not going to say that even though he might be feeling it. So you're putting him on the defensive when you say, what are you thinking, what are you thinking? But there, are, and when you get the communication happening, it's lovely because men do experience rich emotions. They can't convey them. They're also really trying to hide them and to not listen to them. One of the tropes that I really like to challenge is, there's this, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but the trope is, doesn't matter, got laid. And what it means is, doesn't matter that I got home, uh, that I was locked out of my apartment for three hours and I was naked in the rain, I got laid. Doesn't matter that I had to climb through bushes, I got laid. Doesn't matter that I went through hardships, but it also means it doesn't matter that I went through trauma, I got laid. And it's a really a, a toxic narrative for men because it does matter and it leaves wounds. And men are not good at understanding their own pain. So they will come out of a sexual experience unsatisfied, shamed, uh, traumatized by their, their female partner, for example. And they will mask it as, doesn't matter, got laid. And so they'll go home thinking, that was a positive experience. Everything inside of them tells me it's not, tell them it's not, they might be crying the next day, um, but they're not good at getting in touch with that. They build this wall and that's, that's what we interact with. We interact with that stupid wall. And so our perception is that they don't have any feelings, but they do. Um, recently I was, and I hope that I'm going to be speaking very candidly. My sexual life is pretty, uh, it's, it's, informed by the Marquis de Sade. So uh, really recently I was in a threesome and something that astounded me was that the woman lowered man's pants and his penis was revealed and then she proceeded to speak in condescending ways about it. She said, oh look, it's, it's fat and stubby, how cute. And I was mortified because you can't say that to a man. You can't, it, it'll linger and it'll fester in his ego. You, you can't do that kind of damage to a man. If you're ever going to make a comment about a man's penis, let it be a positive comment or keep your mouth shut. So it's, it's it, the blasé manner in which we hurt men is kind of surprising. And then the thing that's hard to explain, and this is really basic and really dumb um, and unfortunate, men understand the sexual experience as follows. You do some work and then you have a climax and the climax feels good and then everyone's happy. That's the extent of the experience. Everything that we understand as the nuance of foreplay and the wonderful, the wonderful buildup. And I'm speaking really simplistically, of course. There's a lot of uh, nuance and different exceptions. But quite often men will, all of that, the date, the dinner, the kissing, the, the romance on the couch, the, the touching each other under the underwear, which is so beautiful and so rich and, and all these feelings, to them it's like, well, you've done some work so that you can penetrate her and then you got to have your climax and then everybody's happy. 
largely speaking, 80% of the time, a man's climax is guaranteed. Meanwhile, a woman comes about 33% of the time. So there's this major disconnect. They don't understand why we're reluctant to, to participate in an experience, which to them is pretty much a sure win. A lot of men come from the point of view that they're trying to sell us on something which is inherently good. Mm. It's kind of like if you, if you have this cake and it's really rich cake and it's wonderful cake and you want me to taste it and you baked it and you're like, well, try it. And I'm like, I oh, know it's okay. You say, no, no, but try it because you know that the moment they taste it, I'm going to say, oh, wow, oh, yeah, that was amazing. You want me to have that experience. You're not being malicious. That's a lot of the way men think. They think, well, trust me, sex is good. We're going to have sex. You're going to enjoy yourself. But we don't. That's the part that they don't get. Very often we don't. Very often they'll come, we'll stay unsatisfied. Or, and this is something else that, again, I'm speaking in simplistic terms. This is a, a different experience for each person. But largely speaking, a man will get hard and will be ready to have sex. And then he will have sex. And then he will enjoy it. For me, I need a buildup. I need... Uh, validation, I need romance, I need to be told certain things that make me, that put me in the right headspace. And if I, and I have tried, if I try to have sex without those components present, if I'm penetrated without those components present, it feels traumatic. It doesn't feel good. It's, it stays with me as a wound. And that, that's something that I, I don't know that I can explain to men that this is not always good. This is not guaranteed good. This is sometimes really bad. Uh, and because of that, I'm staying away from it. This is, a, it's, it's very, very difficult to explain to me. So there's this disconnect. And on top of that, the level of horniness that most men experience, I'm talking largely from the moment they're 14 until the moment they're 34, it will start coming down. Maybe I have more common ground with a 50 year old man now. <laughs> but oh, once I had sex, I was in my 40s and I had sex with this 25 year old guy and it was the worst three minutes of my life. <laughs> And he called me the next day and he wanted to do it again. And I said, you don't understand. That was the, you are the worst sex I've ever had. Oh, man. It was, it, yeah, it was rough. But the thing that he didn't understand is unless I get to that place where now this is, I'm, I'm open for business and now I'm, I'm ready to go. If I have sex before this, then it's physically painful quite often. And and just emotionally, it feels like a violation, even if the other person is not by, and this is where it gets tricky with consent, because I, I might have said yes, reluctantly, or I might have fooled myself into thinking yes, and it still feels like a violation. And sometimes I have to admit to myself, he didn't violate my consent, I violated my consent. So we have to get good at that. But so there's these disconnects, men are so horny, we don't we don't most women don't understand you can kind of experience it a little bit in your late 30s early 40s when you get this like oh i don't know what's happened now i want to fuck the world <laughs> but men feel very very needy in need of putting their dick into something a lot a lot of the time and it drives a lot of their thinking and it feels a little suffocating for them that's something else where I think there's a little bit of a disconnect because they're they're saying, and I'm being a little facetious here, bear with me, but they're saying, I desperately need to put my penis into something. You have a hole. You could easily do me this kindness. <laughs> and why won't you help me? And that's an extremely crude way of saying it, but I really do feel that there's a lot of thinking like that. And so 
getting to the point of conveying that just because you're driven by this really massive libido doesn't mean that we need to solve it. And yes, I understand that there's an unfortunate disconnect there, but, and I'm talking about situations where we're not coupled. I'm talking about the guy at the bar. Now, if I am dating the guy and if I'm in a relationship with the guy and the guy is feeling that level of sexual frustration, there is a number of things that could be done <laughs> without my relating, without make, making me feel like I'm compromising or like this was compromising. But just when the guy meets the girl, there's this thing. Do you remember the movie when Harry met Sally? Yeah. Remember when she sighs and she says, well, I guess it's going to take us a long time before we are comfortable dating somebody. And he says, yeah. And she says, and probably even longer before we can sleep with them. And he looks at her and goes, oh, I slept with her. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Massive. Yeah, well, at least I guess even... Even expressing that would be helpful, right? To start the conversation, just putting like a mm -hmm. honesty and transparency in the table would be a good beginning, right? Yes, yeah. And it, something that I strongly encourage, by the way, and I spend a lot of time in sex positive communities. And so we do some sex education, something I really like. And so this is a plug. This is uh, Dr. Evelyn Decker. Um, she's a medical doctor and she gave a TED talk called STARS, like stars in the sky. And it stands for uh, STIs, sexually transmitted diseases, turn-ons, avoids, like things that you would like to avoid, relationship expectations, and safety protocols. And this is the conversation, the STARS conversation is the kind of conversation that you want to have with a potential lover. Um, she says it's better if you start with relationships, but she just didn't want to call it rats. <laughs> <laughs> so STARS, yeah. But I, I'll give you one example of this. I was, um, uh, this, this guy I was seeing, and it was like, you know, like by the third or fourth date when you're a grown up, it's just kind of like, where is this going? And so he drove me home. He parked his SUV in front of my place. And I could sense that he was in this headspace of what happens now. So I, I went into the Star Talks. I turned to him and I said, um, so, all right, Scott, I like you. And it seems that you like me and we're, sexually compatible. So what I'm thinking, what I'd like to do at this point, I'd like to go upstairs. We could hang out in the living room or we can hang out in my bedroom. There's nobody home, so it's the same thing. Um, we can totally get naked if you'd like. I'd be comfortable with that. I don't think I want penetration tonight. I don't know you that well. I'm not ready for that. But I'm perfectly comfortable giving you a climax. And, and I'm rattling this off and he's just staring at me. And so <laughs> I pause and I say, are you okay? Is this fine? And he said, oh, this is amazing. I had all this anxiety. And I, went, I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> that is amazing. I wish more of those uh, kind of conversations were portrayed in movies and everywhere, you know, that it's <laughs> really teaching us how to do things. That's a great frame. Thank you for that tool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add it in the show notes, but it's definitely great. And it's a conversation to have. Thank you. Yeah, and but movies actually teach us the wrong thing to do. I've been watching I've been watching teen romantic comedies with my daughter, and where we watched a couple of really good things. Um, the show called Never Have I Ever that was really good, really worth watching. A Mindy Kaling project, and then there was another one called The Half of It, which was a que a queer centric um, movie, wonderful one. And uh, and my girl is bisexual, so she came out to me at eleven. So. Uh, it was good that there was a little bit of this girl likes girl kind of a storyline to it. But the moment that somebody likes somebody else, they do this really bizarre thing, which is they jump at the other person. And this is a very movie thing. 
they jump at the other person from three feet away and they grab them by the cheeks and they kiss them in the mouth. And I paused the show and I said, Emma, just so you know, that's not how you do it. <laughs> yeah, you ask them if they would like to be kissed. You have a conversation about it. You're safe and consensual about this thing. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so much to, to teach the kids to do it in a different way. Yeah, movies are a bad, bad influencer. Porn is a really bad, really bad teacher. I don't know if you know the name Jamila Jamil. She's a great public speaker. and uh, She says that when boys learn about sex from porn, it's kind of like learning how to drive by watching The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> It's a great analogy. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's not how you do it. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna destroy the cars. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Kids have a lot of pressure on them these days. They they have a lot of pressure to be sexual. So something important to tell kids is don't try to be everything. Don't try to be a porn star. Don't try to be an Instagram star. Don't try to be famous. Don't get all the likes. Just relax. Be yourself. Which is it sounds easy, but it's. It's hard when you're in that headspace and having all this peer pressure and all this, in like, um, how do you say, a stimulus all the time from many sources. It's like, yeah, it's a huge space where we really need to be aware of how we interact with technology, not allowing the technology drive us in a way that we don't want to go, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's good to be aware as parents of what, what pressures our kids are going to experience at, at uh, 15, your your kid is going to get some other kid asking them to send them nudes, for example. That's not something we had encountered when we were children. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you're right. It's a different way how we interact with everything as the way they are interacting with it now. They, I think they are way more savvy, but at the same time, you need to lead them and guide them into emotions and what, but I feel at least in my household, you know, and it's my hope and wish that in many others could be allowed it, like a communication that they can speak aloud of what what is going on. It's like, hey, look, did someone ask me this? Or, you know, like, but having that instead of just like, what shall I do in secret and hiding? And when all those layers of shame start appearing, I think that's what it just turns everything into, you know, either compacting yourself or just going into the wrong direction. Yeah, it can be really scary to be a teenager in this in this age. I. I... I'm glad that I didn't become a teenager when there was social media. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about how is your worldview now? What are your beliefs or beliefs that have like really shifted from before and after? One of the big things that has taken over my world in a really strong way, I used to be um, lip service feminist. I was introduced to feminism when I was about 21. And I thought, yeah, girls could play baseball. Yeah, I mean, a girl could potentially be a firefighter. But there was a distancing. There was a, like, okay, so this is kind of, it didn't seem urgent, it didn't seem important. And now I think that it's on fire. Now I think that it's um, the Me Too movement and new uh, namas in all of Latin America with all the domestic violence and the women's reproductive rights. It feels so urgent, especially with a 13-year-old daughter, to be screaming out that uh, there was this great movement called Half the Sky. So that feels really important to me to, to finally get equity between the two genders. And I catch myself saying that and I immediately think I'm erasing all of the gender spectrum. So sorry, non-binary folk listening. But 
um, the people that are generally viewed as women in society are constantly exposed to such crap that that men have no understanding of and, and men don't see it because they don't experience it. Um, a good friend of mine who's a professor give, gives this example. She asks the question, how many things, how many actions did you take this week to prevent yourself from getting raped? And she would write it on a board. And of course, the women would fill out the board with little things like, I made sure not to stay too late at night. I was careful about changing clothes before going out in the evening and stuff. And the, the, the whiteboard fills up. And the guys have nothing because they didn't think about it. And I'm not saying that men are bad, but I'm just saying you don't have to think. That's what privilege looks like. You don't have to think about it. In a weird way, this kind of made me aware of race, too, because I'm, I'm Latina, but I'm white passing. And we have massive racial strife in, in the United States right now. And it's a very similar analogy. White people just don't get it. We, it's not that we mean bad. It's very similar to the way cisgender heterosexual men think. It's not malice. It's just utter blindness to the problem. But when you walk around as black, you risk. So, so I've become really, really conscious of these marginalizations. And that wakes me up with a passion to tell a story. I think that that's the most fundamental. I, I My kids are exhausted because I talk to them about this stuff all the time. <laughs> I think that's one of the one of the strongest things that's changed. I also um, I've fallen madly in love with Brene Brown and the whole subject of overcoming shame and uh, leaning to vulnerability. One of the saddest things about being transgender is that you avoid vulnerability like it's a plague, and you learn how to perform, and you learn how to fake, and you learn how to hide, and you get by. I looked very successfully like a person that has car and job and kids, but I didn't live that. I, I performed that. And now that I'm vulnerable and open and engaging with people, I have true friendships. I'm engaging with people in a level that I wasn't engaging before. The importance of vulnerability to connect with human beings, that's where the magic of life happens. That is really important to me. I hear you. And yes, when someone has not lived that experience, it's out of their field, literally. Mm -hmm. For example, even in your case with your family, that they live a completely different story of what you are living now, right? But they haven't been in your experience, literally. <laughs> how do you either share the experience or how do you make them be part of that or understand or just let them think whatever they think? Or are you trying to explain somehow? Or it's just like, if you want to ask me, you know, or I don't know, are they afraid to even ask you or go into deep questions trying to understand you? It's a really difficult experience for families. And a lot of families fall apart because of it. Marriages fall apart because of it. There are cases of a couple where the one spouse transitioned from male to female and the marriage stayed together, but they're few. If the, if the wife is not bisexual, then of course it's going to become a sexless marriage. Um, but quite often they just, the, the, the bait and switch feeling, the feeling of your expectations not being met and this idea that you've been deceived or cheated out of something creeps in and then that breaks relationships with families. And it's changing now. I lead a, a group, uh, a support group for parents of trans kids. There's 650 of us in that group. And I hear some amazing stories, parents that are accepting their kids who are transitioning, who are saying their gender at three, at four years old, and then allowed to just like, well, go and put on a dress and you can be called Susan and that's perfectly fine. 
but my parents, for example, couldn't do it. My father fell immediately outside. We stopped communicating once I went into this gender journey. And my mother tried to stick with it, but she just, she couldn't get it. And she kept misgendering me and she kept referring to me by my old name. And she kept saying things that she kept using words like father in referring to me and my children. And it just became too much. And after four years, we our relationship just fell. I am hoping that it can still be rebuilt. With my children, it's been most fun. And sometimes it's very challenging, but really a lot of fun too. Some funny moments. My, my son at one point was very angry. And he said, I don't want another mom. <laughs> and I said, you're not going to get another mom like her. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm still going to be me. I'm still, we're still going to play video games and go get ice cream. I'm just going to have boobs when we do it. <laughs> and slowly he understood that I'm not going to change my personality. I'm just, just going to change the, the way that I present to the world. But it was hard for him. I think that of all the people that have, I don't know what words to use, like hurt, or that I forced to to go through some labor, emotional labor. My son, definitely, because he was 13 when I was transitioning, I'm 14, and that's a hard age. The boy needs the, the mm. father figure, and I robbed him from that. I, I literally told him uh, when he was 13 that he can't use the word father anymore. He can't use the word dad anymore. That word is retired, canceled, because it destroys me, because I can't have it. But it was a hard choice to make, and it was a very selfish choice to make on my part, Something to understand about trans women is, by the way, there's a difference between a trans woman and a transitioning woman. A transitioning woman is going through a life event, is going through a major life event comparable to, for example, I don't know if I can make this comparison, but for example, getting cancer. You don't know if you're going to survive it. That's a very good analogy. You don't know if you're going to survive it. It's a three to four year process, at minimum, a three to four year process. You know how a, a cancer patient has to lose all her hair, and she's really self-conscious about the loss of hair. There's a period of about two years where a trans woman is very aware that she looks ridiculous in a dress, and that everywhere she goes, she's going to be stared at, and she's going to be pointed at. It's horrifying. A butterfly goes into a pupa, and goes into hiding, and emerges a butterfly. <laughs> we don't. We have to go to the grocery store. And so during those times, a transitioning woman, quite frankly, she's a pain in the ass. <laughs> she, she's going to be very difficult because she's going to have to be self-centered. She's going to have to make it about herself. And it's either that or, or she might die. 42% uh, of trans women attempt suicide at one point of their lives. And that came very close. So you have to understand the deep pain that they're going through and that this is not just some vanity exercise. And if you have a person transitioning in your life, yeah, they're going to be kind of a lot for a while, but that's that's what happens. And then it settles down. Then it settles down. And now, for example, I consider myself a transgender woman, but I don't really necessarily consider myself to be transitioning so much. My legal marker says female. My name is Cassandra on my, on my, on my papers. People at work know me as a woman. People, all my friends know me as a woman. My daughter refers to me as mom. The dust has settled, but the th things are much more comfortable now. And so maybe at this point of the game, I could reach out to my family, to my mother, to my sister, and try to reconnect. And I'm thinking about it. It's it's a difficult question to answer. Um, family is the hardest. You'd think that they would be on your side. You'd think that they would be the ones who are most going to champion you. But it's often not the case because they have a perception of you. That they, they have seen you from childhood. And when you tell them, especially late in life, when you're transitioning in your 30s or 30s or 40s, 
you're telling them, yeah, all of that that you know about me, that's not true. They're going to say, no. <laughs> so it's easier for a new friend. It's easier for somebody who's just met you to be accepting than for a family. I hear you. Yeah. Hopefully that results in what is better for you. Yes. I wanted to add something because I, I, I really want to get across this thing. This is going to be my, we're going to put this on a t-shirt. Transgender women are a pain in the ass. <laughs> Just understand that. Yeah. And in that sense for me, like how, how different are we all different, right? And how we are all a pain in the ass sometimes. You could just put, we're all a pain in the ass sometimes. That's true. Because for example, I hear you, you know, it's like, uh, and it's not the same. I'm not trying to put it like, you know, apple to apple. My mother has had a like, really hard time to understand who I am mm -hmm. because she had an idea of who I should be. We didn't talk to each other for a couple of years. See, exactly. So what relation it's it's easy you know there's always like work to do but if you're yeah. willing to do it and if you're a, if you're a parent you have to you have to allow for your child to tell you who they really are and then you want to make friends with that person not with whoever you imagined that they're going to be but when i said that transgender women are a pain in the ass i i, I actually was adding another nuance to that in the fact that our inner life can be really difficult our inner life can, can be really traumatic sometimes. And we've lived a life of shame and a lot of people telling us that we're freaks and that we're weirdos and that we're wrong. So we carry a lot of pain, internal pain. So this is what I'm trying to convey in the most empathetic way possible. If you know a trans woman, if sometimes you feel that she's being a little bit difficult, if you feel that sometimes she, she's, she's showing her, oh, by the way, we're full of hormones. So we're like teenagers. Um, <laughs> because yeah we're on a hormone regime but if she's being difficult and you feel that the reaction was not was undeserved if you were trying to be kind and she's biting your your head off or whatever don't get argumentative just be patient we really are going through a lot especially during the active transition part and sometimes you don't know what monsters you've woken up in her mm, i hear you yes yes tell me how were you taught or how did you learn to believe in yourself because for me clearly there's a huge process you know i see a woman now that is just fully embodied and it's really fully accepting all her parts and proud of them and that for me it's just so beautiful so how did you learn was it a conscious process to believe in yourself it's really interesting because with the shame of religion and with the shame of misogyny and with the shame of transphobia I spent a lot of my life believing that I'm dirt, that I'm garbage, and I'm discardable, and, and I'm not, I don't deserve to be on this earth. But I don't think that was lacking something. I think that my self-confidence was there, and I think that there was something on top of it. Something I remember, because I kind of a funny anecdote, when I was something like seven or maybe eight years old, I was just walking down the hallway of my home, and my groin itched, so I scratched my crotch. And my grandfather was walking the other way, and my grandfather saw me, and my grandfather was a very stern, very religious man. And he saw me, and he grabbed me, and he said, we don't touch ourselves there. And I distinctly remember being like seven or eight years old, and thinking to my, I didn't say it that loud, but I think to myself, yeah, old man, you don't touch yourself there. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is my body. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. So at eight, I had that 
that self-assurance, but then I lost it, I think. And I lost it. I think that a lot for me came crashing down once I started having ejaculations and once I started having erections. The incongruence of that with my perception of my gender and the disgust at my emerging sexuality, the, the grossness of my emerging sexuality was horrifying to me. And all of that led me to this long, long path of shame. And I, what, what I honestly expected, the way that I had expected my storyline to unfold because of my religious upbringing, I leaned really, really heavily towards spirituality and religion. I told you, I spent over 10 years in a cult. The way I expected the story to go was that I was going to put all of my sexuality away. I was going to tuck it away and repress it. And I was going to lean completely into spirituality and I was going to be redeemed. I was going to be saved. Um, not necessarily in the spiritual, in the Christian way, but still that model of that saved a wretch like me, kind of a amazing grace kind of a storyline. That's what I expected would happen, but that's not what happened. What happened is that I, I followed, I leaned into the religion part of it. I committed on it full throttle and I went all into religion. Religion let me down, proved to be a lie and a disappointment. In my case, some viewers out there might be having deep, rich ex religious experiences. In my case, it proved to be just a nothing. I was left honestly just looking at suicide as the option, looking at, okay, so what's next? And where I emerged out of that was the only path I have towards continuing to exist is to burn it all down, just light everything on fire. If there would be a slogan for that moment of my life is, who gives a fuck? Just let it all go. Uh, let all the shame go. And, and that's one of the reasons why I speak with such abandon about my sexual experiences and about everything, because if I catch the slightest inkling of shame in me, I push it against that, not towards that. Mm -hmm. The freedom of that. There's a sentence, maybe it's a Mae West quote, there's nothing as freeing as a ruined reputation. Yes. <laughs> Tell me something. Mm -hmm. Just a couple more questions. Sure. From your perspective, if you would have just a magic wand to change whatever you wanted, how, how the world would look like? It's a challenging question. I, uh, everybody wants to rule the world, right? I, I, I know what I would like. it. I, I would like it to look like Iceland, and I would like it to look like New Zealand. I would like it to have a woman in leadership, and I would like it to have women sen senators. Because quite frankly, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, women make better rulers than men. I think that there's an empathy and there's a giving, there's a generosity that comes innately. This is me talking. This, I'm speaking really frankly. I'm not trying to be politically correct or anything like that. This is just me talking. Or, or whoever is in charge, whether or not they're, they're a man or woman, whether they're non-binary, whether they have a penis or a vulva, they would have to be driving from compassion and from nurture and not from competitiveness and not from ego and narcissism and collaborative environments, not environments that are hierarchical with people telling other people how to live prescriptively, but collaborative environments. There's an author that I really like called Robert Fulgham. And Robert Fulgham says that at his age, instead of thinking, how could you possibly look at it like that? He says, you look at it like that? Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> And that's, that's why I'm, I'm hoping people are going to have a lot more curiosity for one another and not expect all of us to be the same. It would be so boring. Oh, yes, I hear you. I hear that worldview. 
If I could give you a permission slip, what would you give yourself permission to do? Wow, that's a hard question. I'll tell you the first thing that came up for me, and it's probably not my most profound answer, but cry. Because, yeah, I deflect with laughter, but there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of trauma. And there's a lot of, a, a long road, a long dusty road that I've walked. And something that would be absolutely amazing would be to have, and this person that I'm going to describe does not have to be male. And this person that I'm going to describe does not have to have a penis. My last partner was non-binary and they were perfect at this. I'd like to have a husband that I can just curl into his chest and have him hold me and, and cry for a while and have somebody else tell me that I don't have to be strong and that it's okay. Because I, I think that the, the bane of feminism is that we have to we have to be strong a lot, too often, too much. Well, permission granted. You can cry <laughs> and cry all that you need and helps you heal. I have so much enjoyed this conversation. It has been a delight. Thanks for all your experiences and sharing your wisdom and your braveness. I really admire you and I'm inspired by your journey. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. And I welcome the fact that we were able to have this conversation. I'm hoping that this conversation is going to model to others the kind of conversations that could and should be happening a lot. When you find somebody that's different, when you find somebody that, that is polyamorous or somebody that is uh, pansexual or somebody that's gender fluid or whatever, and you don't get it, instead of shying away from the conversation because, oh, God forbid you might make a mistake, yeah, just tell them, could you tell me about your world? And uh, you have such great conversations. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that world. That we can just <laughs> bring curiosity to us and ask questions and hear all those worlds. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to blab and blab and blab and, and, and say all the things. <laughs> Thank you all that have listened. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. I will put in the show notes all the information that you might need if you want to follow her work. Yeah, my website is castybrighter.com. I also have empoweredtranswoman.com as this big initiative. And I'm working on female empowerment. I have a Facebook page called Smart Sluts. Soon going to build a website for that. Give us a hint of what that would look like. I want to do a summit. I want to do a conference once a year where sexologists and therapists and tantricas and sex workers and women from all areas of sexuality come together and talk about things. I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Big hug. Ciao for now, and meanwhile, you are invited to envision and take action. What can you do today to create the world that you want to live in?